Hello health scientists and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host Richie Kerwin and today I'm going to be speaking with Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist and a governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust as well as being the former chair of the British Psychological Society's Training Committee in Counselling Psychology. Kimberly is also an award-winning food producer with a degree in nutrition and her work looks at the role food and lifestyle plays in our mental health, including disordered eating, the gut-brain axis and our emotional relationship with food. She's even been a finalist on the Great British Bake Off and on top of all of that, Kimberly is also author of How to Build a Healthy Brain, which was published in March of last year. Mental health is something that we are gradually becoming more comfortable talking about. And I say this because when I was younger, it was certainly considered taboo. And like all topics in health, we hear a lot of conflicting information about it, particularly around the role our nutrition and lifestyle habits can play in things like depression, anxiety or dementia. That's why I was so excited to speak with Kimberly. Uh, She was aware of the importance of nutrition in mental health and decided to study it more in depth to better understand how nutrition can be leveraged to help people dealing with mental health issues. On top of all this, we also discuss whether good nutrition and lifestyle habits are the real mental health panacea that some people make them out to be. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I enjoyed this conversation with Kimberly very much. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share and spread the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in the information we talk about in this episode, please, please share it with them. So on to this conversation with Kimberly. Let's talk science. Kimberly, how are you? I am very good. Hello. (laughs) Thank you very, very much for joining me tonight. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to speak with me um, because I know you are a very, very busy person. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you wear quite a few hats. You know, you're a psychologist, an author, a podcaster, you're a baker uh, as well. <laughs> uh, and... I was just wondering, for anybody who, who might not be familiar with you and your work, could you just give us a little bit of an intro as to who you are and what you do, please? Sure. So I am a psychologist. That's the kind of uh, thing that's top of my CV. Um, but uh, I also have a master's degree in nutrition, and my work really sits at the overlap between uh, food and psychology, So, which I think are hugely interlinked anyway. But uh, in particular, an area of uh, research and practice called nutritional psychiatry, um, which is how food and nutrients affect the structure and function of the brain and the utilisation of food and nutrients in uh, prevention and treatment of mental health conditions. Um, I'm also particularly interested in uh, disorders of the gut brain axis, so in particular IBS, because IBS is really the, the perfect marriage of the brain and the gut in terms of um, how it manifests in the body. And most people think things like IBS are just about food, 
but IBS is a stress sensitive disorder. So it really speaks to the relationship between the brain and the gut. I find it fascinating. Um, and also I like to have a more general conversation around the emotional, psychological and social relationships that we have with food. Cause I think, you know, that we can get, stuck in this idea of talking about food just as nutrients just as kind of nutrients on a plate but obviously food plays a much bigger part in our lives than that so I do try to leave a little bit of space for for kind of conversation on, on that area as well. Right so I can already tell that I'm going to really really enjoy this conversation because you mentioned food multiple times already so <laughs> That, that that's a good start of our conversation in, in my books. Um, but before we, we get into any of the, the details, um, I'm just, I'm always curious about people's backstory when it comes to how they got into their particular field. So, so how did you kind of make the decision to get into psychology? And if we kind of go a little bit further along the lines, what was the, the impetus that got you specifically into the, the nutrition area or made you want to kind of to, to branch out there? Because personally, I, I find anybody who's able to, add on an extra area of expertise. I, I just find that fascinating. So I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. Um, well, I, I was kind of one of those strange people who knew what they wanted to do very early on. So at 16, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist. I, I, I've always been a bit of an observer. I've always been curious about why, given the same set of situations and circumstances, people behave in different ways um and was also very aware of kind of mental health conditions in and around you know my my family growing up so i was always very interested i at 16 i knew that i wanted to do and that it was very much a straight road for me from there so i did my a levels i did my undergrad degree i did my post dad degree and then um, additional mscs on top of that as well so um yeah, I've basically just been in it from the beginning, <laughs> which isn't necessarily, you know, I think sometimes people can feel that they ought to know what they want to do very early in their lives. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, and I think sometimes it's a bit odd when you do, but I, I happen to be one of those people. And with the food, the food is really both a personal thing. I've always, I, I call myself a hungry girl. I've always been interested in food, in cooking and eating at home. Um, we had these big like collectible um, recipe cards and I would just flick through them looking at the pictures just just I've always been interested in food um, and it, but it was when I was I was in the process of um, graduating from uh, my qualification and I was working in prison and uh, at that time a replication of a major study came out so a study had 2002 this was around 2009 2010 and a big replication um study came out showing that and, and, and i guess it's relevant because i was working in uh, an area of you know an area of the prison which is particularly dangerous i was working with managing the uh, safety of the women who were in my care and in the care of my team i was running the therapy service in what was then europe's largest women's prison um so thinking about safety thinking about the risks of self-harm women have the highest rates of self-harm in the prison estate and this paper came out which showed that just by improving the nutrition in the prison and it was done in in, in male prisoners but improving the nutrition in male prisoners reduced incidence of violence by 30 percent and to me, that was extraordinary because safety, violence, 
harm and risk reduction are huge issues for the prison estate, you know, in terms of keeping prisoners safe, in keeping staff safe, in terms of people being able to return to communities and families and being safe and, and not coming back. The UK has an incredibly high rate of recidivism, people coming back into prison within a year of release. Um, so to me, it was extraordinary that something as simple as improving nutrition and in the studies, it was done using um, supplements. So it wasn't even kind of overhauling the diets. It was giving people nutritional supplements, very cheap, at very low risk, very accessible, could have this really profound effect on something that we don't consider to be really associated to nutrition at all, which is violence um, and aspects of behavior. So it was from there that I really got into the, to the research um, as to actually what are the other ways then that nutrition might be affecting things that aren't even as, as extreme as violence, things like depression, things just like everyday mood, things like anxiety and so forth. And, and that's where it really kicked off for me. That's fascinating. Um... Uh, I, I really want to get into that prison example a little bit later, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier. But one thing, just kind of based off that, is within the whole field of, of mental health, there, there seems to be this idea that if somebody has some sort of a mental health disorder, the, the go-to therapy is either drugs or some sort of talk therapy or you know work with a, a psychologist. Um, but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between let's say, psychological disorders and what I would consider other health sciences. So, you know, we, you know, in a lot of health sciences, we, we can see the, the clear connection between our body and our food and what we eat and how that affects other aspects of health. Why do you think there seems to be that disconnect within the, the field of, of kind of mental, mental health sciences? Um, it's, I think it's a, a hangover from the historical way that we've really looked at the brain and the mind. So we have this idea of mind over matter. Um, and, and really that speaks to this sense in which the mind isn't related to, the, to matter, that the mind isn't a physical thing. It isn't associated to anything physical. We think of the mind as ethereal. We think of it as spiritual. We think of it as just these disembodied thoughts that we kind of just have access to. And what we really don't think about is that your thoughts your feelings, your intentions, your goals, your ambitions, your dreams are a function of your brain. And the brain is a physical organ. And like the other physical organs in your body, the heart, the liver, your kidneys, that your brain relies on nutrition to function properly. It relies on nutrition for healthy structure. And in the same way that if your heart is struggling, you can tell because it's functioning incorrectly or its function is impaired right so you might have heart palpitations or high blood pressure or you might be you know fainting and that's a sign that your your heart is struggling and that it needs additional support and you need to look after it a little better or, or find out what's going on with it so you know that an organ is struggling when its functions are impaired it just so happens that the functions of your brain are mood our concentration, are things like depression. So we need to be thinking about the idea that if there is an impairment in the functions of the brain, maybe we should be thinking about what additional support the brain needs, that the brain is a physical organ and it needs you know, everyday physical support like good nutrition, good sleep, exercise and so forth. Absolutely. Um, I think that there's also this, this bit of a, a disconnect in just... In the, amongst the general population that when something affects us 
let's say, emotionally or when something is affecting us mentally, it can very, very much have a, a knock-on physical effect. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering, why do, do we, we seem to fail to, to connect this, to make that connection between the physical effects of, let's say, emotional distress or, or stress in general? Why, why, are, why aren't more people kind of talking about that or concerned about that? Because we just don't think that the, anything that happens in the mind has, can have a physical effect. Again, we, because, you know, if I'm having a thought, I don't think of it as, you know, tiny little chemicals splashing around in my brain and hitting nerve endings. I think of it as ideas and images. So we don't have this kind of natural way to associate your thoughts and your ideas to the physical things that underpin them, your neurotransmitters, your brain cells and so forth. So we, we just don't consider it. And then on top of that, um, certainly in, in, in England, I'm, I'm going to guess it's the same for you guys. There's an enormous amount of emotional suppression. There's a kind of stiff upper lip repression. Don't talk about it. Don't have to deal with it. Just push on, tough it out as if that's what, that's what emotion, what you can do with emotions. We completely ignore the fact that your emotions have a physical impact on the body, a physical, measurable impact on the body. We know this because, for example, your stress hormones, I mean, women have perhaps a more accessible um, sense of this because when, when you're stressed, your period can disappear for, for months. So we know that stress can cause changes in your fertility and in your hormonal cycle. But, you know, more than that, stress can turn off your growth hormone. So we know that children who experience high levels of stress, stress, cortisol turns off growth hormone. And so it can literally stunt their growth. For people who are overtraining in the gym, this is why you're not seeing results. It's because your stress hormones are turning off your growth hormone. And so you're not going to get the hypertrophy that you expect from all the work that you're putting in in a gym. So we need to understand that psychological stress and emotions can bring on psychological stress. Psychological stress has a physiological effect on the body. And that's why you have to take your emotions seriously. It's not about pushing through. It's not about ignoring them. It's about understanding what your body is trying to tell you. Absolutely. This is slightly veering off um, the track that I want to go down, but I think it's a question that that's, that's worth asking. Is so obviously, you know, I, I'm I'm from Ireland and I'm from a rural region in Ireland, and rural Ireland is not well known for uh, men who talk about their feelings. Um, and it's I just think I think it's relatively a similar situation here in the UK that we're in a society where. Up until quite recently, and, and potentially even still at the moment, talking about mental health was or still is taboo. Um, and if somebody admits to having a mental health disorder, it's almost looked de- down upon. In your in the time that you've been practicing, have you even s- seen a change over the past, let's say, ten years or so, in people's openness to speak about that and, and their their willingness to approach it? Because I'm sure that you know because of that unwillingness to speak about it, it, it's caused a great deal of harm to, to people who just haven't come forward about problems. Mm. I think half and half. So I think, first of all, I have quite a skewed sample because obviously everybody I hang around with talks about their feelings all the time. So <laughs> you can't stop a psychologist and be like, hi, yeah, how are you feeling? No, how are you really feeling? Talk to me. Um, so... And and you know what? I'm not sure. I think, yes, what's been fantastic, particularly on social media, 
And I think millennials um, and Gen Z have been really good at this, which is just talking about their therapy, destigmatizing therapy. Hey, I'm in therapy. You know, that it just normalizes this experience. And I talk to my clients about therapy being like PT. If you would go to a PT to help them because you know that they're a skilled professional to help you physically, then going to a psychologist or a therapist is exactly the same thing. It's no big deal. Um, but I think in certain industries, it's still massively taboo and people will only pay lip service to wellness and to mental wellness. So I think in the still very historically boys club industries of finance, of law, um, barristers, uh, I, I don't think it's very open to talking about mental mental health and mental health conditions. Um, I think... So, so when I was working in prisons, for example, what that you would have the old school and the new school type of prison officer, and uh, half of them, so the old school ones, would be like, "Oh, all you do is come up here and make them cry, and then we're left to deal with it." And part of that was in relation to the just the difficulties and the struggles that the officers were having on the prison anyway, and I could totally understand that. And there was some resentment, right, because here were these offenders getting mental health support when you know the officers i spoke to an officer who on her first weekend was called to someone who who was cold blue so essentially that someone had attempted suicide and um was unresponsive and she was like where was my mental health support then so there's you know there's a lot of difficulties about understandings and allocation of mental health support in some industries whereas you know New school officers were referring people to my service and saying it's it's great and really want to get them involved. So I think, yes, we've, we've come a long way, but I think we need to not neglect that certain industries and certain areas of society aren't part of the conversation about mental health that a lot of other people are having on social media or, um, you know, in much more open industries. Absolutely. Um, I think just, just based on that and just like kind of following on from, speaking specifically about, you know, your experience in prisons, obviously you, you've been very, very vocal about the importance of better dietary practices in, in prisons, but you've also been very, very vocal about the importance of nutrition and food amongst children who are going to school. And I just wanted to, to kind of ask you a little bit about the research that's being done in those populations at the moment um, and what kind of impact it has on you know what specific outcomes um and then we, we talk a little bit more about that once once we get a, a bit of a base for it sure and i guess maybe it's it's worth starting chronologically because i i know um I, i'm kind of glad that you you say i've been vocal about prisons because i i kind of want people to listen because i know that people aren't massively uh, sympathetic to the needs of prisoners but when you understand how someone has got to this place in their life, I would hope that people would be much more sympathetic. Like, I always say, happy people don't hurt people. If you're doing well, if you're getting on fine, if life is good for you, you don't go out and commit a crime, you don't commit a burglary. You know, that's not what happy, you know, people who are being well cared for do. And working in prisons, I heard the most disturbing stories of childhood trauma and abuse of my career um and so we have to understand that people aren't just born offenders they don't just come out looking for a bank to rob 
they, they, they were children first, and they were often children who've had incredibly traumatic histories. Where the food story comes in is in a way that I think we should be actually quite angry about. So we know, for example, that um, yeah. so when you take a group of children, children who are on free school meals, so in fact, let me wind it back. So because this all comes up because of the free school meal um, debacle, I think, uh, across COVID and the idea that, you know, it, it should be fine and hunger isn't a big issue. Hunger is a massive issue. As I said, you know, stress hormones can turn off your growth hormone. And because food and nutrition is crucial to survival, hunger and chronic hunger is a chronic stressor. So a child who is hungry is a child who is in distress, who has higher levels of stress hormones, who is vulnerable. So that should, it should never happen, but it's a massive issue in terms of that child's brain health. A, because your brain is made of nutrients. Your brain is made of certain nutrients that you can only get through your diet. Your body can't make them, you have to eat them. And so a child who is hungry is literally not getting the building blocks to build a brain that is functioning optimally. Um, on top of that, we know that hunger leads to increases in aggression and aggressive behavior. So in adults, we just call it being hangry and irritable. But in children, it leads to acting out. So hungry children are more aggressive. They're more likely to get in fights. They're more likely to kick off in class. And the problem with that is that the, the teacher or the teaching assistant or whoever isn't going to go, oh, Tommy's hungry. They're going to say Tommy's a difficult child. They're, he's naughty, he's, he's not very well behaved. And those labels can stick. Um, and so, for example, um, Carmel McConnell, who runs Magic Breakfast, found that in her studies, the Magic Breakfast provide uh, free breakfast to children in, in areas of deprivation around the country. And she found in a, a kind of comparison study that they did that in the schools that were having the breakfasts, the number of fights in first play dropped by 30%. So children who are able, who have breakfast are much more settled. They're much more relaxed. They're much less likely to get into fights. Um, we know, for example, that children who are in receipt of free school meals, even when you control for other areas of deprivation, for other factors of deprivation, are four times more likely to be kicked out of school. So hunger is leading to detrimental behavior, which can get someone kicked out of school. And when you're kicked out of school, you're, you're much more likely to be on the pathway to a difficult, you know, a difficult adolescence and, and more likely to end up in prison. Um, so there's this clear line between hunger and poor nutrition in childhood and the child's brain function and their behavior and then um, where that behavior gets them. And this is why we need to be thinking about nutrition. This is why we need to take childhood hunger and the rates of childhood hunger in the UK much, much more seriously. And this is why if, if something as simple and as cheap and as low risk and as accessible as good food or even a supplement, I think supplements aren't ideal, but if they're effective and they can help someone think and learn or, you know, not be as violent and aggressive and not self-harm, I think it is a moral imperative that we do that. If we know that we can help someone with a 10p vitamin and we just say, no, let's not bother, then we're failing in our moral duty, I think, as a country. No, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. I think at the moment we're, we're, we're living in 
a world where many of us are completely removed from that situation. Um, like, you know, just speaking for my own, for myself, I grew up, like I said, on a farm in the countryside. Food was never an issue for, for myself or for, for any of the people around me. But I, I, I learned again through the podcast about some of the major issues here in the UK in certain urban populations and certain populations that are just very, they're just in almost poverty and they're not getting food. Like I there was shocked. going through bins on their way to school because they're so hungry. And, and the, the, what compounds that is that the most important lessons, math, science, English are in the morning. So if you've got a child on free school meals and they haven't had breakfast, they can't concentrate. I can't concentrate when I haven't had breakfast. Right? So a child who is still growing cannot concentrate when they haven't had breakfast, which means they're missing those most important lessons of the day before they get round to having that free school lunch when they can then settle. And a recent review found that because of hunger, children are missing up about a term's worth of learning because they cannot concentrate. And so if you're thinking about social disparities, you've got children who are already from a poorer background, already experiencing deprivation, who are then, because of that deprivation, being left further behind in their education, not getting the grades that would help them to move out of the cycle of poverty. And it's this way that hunger helps to keep people in a cycle of poverty. I think it's outrageous. It is. Um... And, like, if anything comes of this podcast, like, if just some more people become aware of it and some more people can... Actually, yeah, what can we... Like, that, that's a good question. What can we... It's, it's, it's all well and good talking about it. What can the, the, the average person do when, like, somebody's hearing this and say, that's disgraceful. That's, like, you know, and I know there will be people who are, who are hearing this for the first time. What can, what can be done? Okay, so, um, so yeah, so the first thing, so if you, I, I did a whole podcast series, Crime and Nourishment, which talks if you're interested in finding out more on the science. Um, I think then it's about making noise. I'm, I'm kind of wanting to be doing much more of this, which is trying to sit down and have a chat with Priti Patel, because what we know is that the Home Office have known this stuff. When we're thinking about the prisons, the Home Office had known this for 20 years, so the original study that was done in 2002, and that's when it was published. So actually the recording of the evidence was before that because it takes a while to write up um, clinical trials. So the Home Office had known that if they gave prisoners improved nutrition, they re could reduce levels of violence. And I know that two journalists who have spoken to the Home Office civil servants about this have had the same response back, which is, we just don't really care about this. And... <sighs> That doesn't make sense when, A, then the government says, well, what we need is longer sentences and more prisons because the prisons, the, the government's own research says that that doesn't work. It doesn't make people safer. It doesn't act as a deterrent to crime. It makes things worse. It separates families. Having a parent in prison is one of the biggest risk factors for ending up in prison yourself. So it increases the risk for those children. So it's an absolute nonsense. And they could have done something about it. 20 years ago um so when i get the petition up and when i'm making noise please do join me and, and share that information and if you want to do something personally um if you can support the charity like magic breakfast who are providing breakfasts for children and making sure that these children who are vulnerable and 
because one of the things that came up during the argument with the government about should the government be providing free school meals was, well, what are their parents doing? What are their parents doing with the money? What am I paying my taxes for? Like, sure, absolutely. If you want to punish parents for being irresponsible or whatever, fine. But don't punish the children. The children didn't ask to be born to these parents that you think are feckless. It's the, that's irrelevant. If a child is hungry, a child needs to be fed. And, and I think that's, that's the kind of full stop on the end of that. So um, support charities. If you can um, support a, a food bank um, or something like that, then that's something um, you can do. Write to your MP, ask them what they're doing about making sure that um, children are being fed. And if you like to read the research on prison nutrition, I will happily send you the files. <laughs> so, absolutely. There you go. You'll be getting a, a lot of uh, messages after this. Um, so... One thing that you've spoken about in, in particular here is about the effect of hunger on, on, on children and the effect of, of hunger on, on their ability to, to concentrate. But obviously there's a huge, um, there are a huge amount of nutrients that are going to be involved in, in mental health and cognition and in depression. And I was wondering if you could just tell us about some of the key players uh, when it comes to mental health and it can be in, in, you know, from a, a cognition perspective, it could be from a, a depression or anxiety perspective. Just what is it about, what do these nutrients do in our bodies that play such an important role in our mental health? Okay, sure thing. <laughs> so, um, so, let, so we can break it down into structure and function, right? Um, so structure, which is literally what, how is the brain formed and then function, how is it working? So structurally, your brain two-thirds of the outer membrane of your brain cells is a fat um, called DHA, uh, docosahexaenoic acid for anybody who wants the full name, but DHA. Um, it is an omega-3 fatty acid, and it is found in its most bioavailable form in oily fish. So mackerel, anchovies, sprats, sardines, trout, herring. It is found in those foods. Um, and because, I mean... <sighs> very very technically your brain can your body can make them but really not very well um for, and only if you're getting enough of it, another type of fat so let's ignore that actually um because they're so important for your brain for example we know that the children born to mothers who aren't getting enough of these fats have smaller brains they have smaller brains that have fewer connections so literally your the, the size of your brain is based on how many um, the abundance of these fats in your mother's diet while she was pregnant with you. Your brain continues to develop and to, to grow up until the age of 25. So through those years, you absolutely need to be ensuring that you're getting enough of these oily, oily fish fats um, because they are the literal building blocks of your brain. So that's always going to be the thing that I start with. But I th again, you know, coming back to this idea that people don't think that anything that happens in the mind is related to kind of physical matter. Um, so something like serotonin, so what we think of as our happy hormone, the, the thing that antidepressants are supposed to increase the level of and to make you feel better. Um, in order to make serotonin, you need iron, vitamin C, vitamins B6 and B9, folate, like you need these nutrients in order to make the hormone to make you feel good. 
So, you know, a range of those nutrients is essential just to build those, uh, those um, neurotransmitters. Um, another really beautiful study found that people who had a bowl of leafy greens, so leafy green vegetables, your, your kales, your spinach, your watercress, those rocket, that sort of thing, excuse me. Um, in old age, people who had daily greens had brains that were 11 years younger than their peers. They slow the rate of brain aging by such a dramatic degree. Just a handful a day can make this really profound difference in your brain health. Um, and essentially, it's really about, you know, it, it's not about, you know, eating these nutrients will make you happy, eating these nutrients will make you less anxious. It's about how do I build a healthy brain? How do I reinforce the structure it's like putting the foundations in in a house like it doesn't matter you know all the fancy frilly bits you want to put on you want new windows you want a patio you need strong foundations and you get strong foundations by getting the right nutrients in ideally as early as possible but then continually uh, throughout your life absolutely um what, what you mentioned there about the the effect of the, the mother's diet on the child's brain development is it is a little bit scary because, you know, obviously we have no, we have no effect of our, we have no impact on our, our mother's diet. We can't do anything to, to change that. Um, so so we, we've, there's almost this incredible need for more education um, around, you know, for mothers to be, to, you know, to help them improve their diet when, you know, they're, they're when they're carrying, you know, on top of that, we've also got like, and I don't know if, you, if this is something that you'd be willing to talk to, but, um, there's the possibility for you know epigenetic changes when a mother is is pregnant and when a child is is in the womb and the mother's diet can have a huge effect on what's going to happen to that child from regarding a whole host of, of physical outcomes but uh, is there any evidence about you know other epigenetic changes when it comes to mental health as well so um a couple so infection is and, and, and i don't want to scare people please don't be afraid <laughs> knowledge is power like, don't be scared um and and really it's about just letting people know that this stuff is important and and i think particularly because i see a lot of people um or at least a few years ago i was seeing it much more people just making very dramatic changes to their diets without knowing the impact of those changes on their brain health um and so it's really the really the message is if you're going to make any drastic change to your diet if you're going to shift the way that you eat understand the effect that it's going to have on your brain make sure you know what your brain needs you know eat how you like i just want your brain to be nourished um and so there is a little bit of evidence so one something that people can't help is infection so we know sometimes that getting an infection um during pregnancy can have it can increase the risk of things like um and again it's kind of the risk is small but you know it can increase the risk of things like schizophrenia um, which is why, you know, at, even at the moment, people like making sure that pregnant don't get COVID because we don't know the effects that it might have on the unborn child and, and, and so forth. Um, but all, but broadly, stress, you know, in terms of the other factors, and I, again, I know that stress isn't always manageable. You know, sometimes catastrophes happen and accidents happen and things happen in your life, and 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 the universe doesn't wait to ask whether you're pregnant or not. You know, life happens. Um, but where it is possible for people to try to manage stress as much as they can. So if you 
you know, if you can take your, if you're in a massively stressful job and you can take your maternity leave a little bit earlier, do, or if you, you know, can move home for a little bit and get someone to help you or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the stressor is in your life, trying to bring down those stressful moments is going to be really important just in terms of not, because what happens is that the, the fetus is always getting information about the environment through the mother's body. And so that information might be nutritional. So it's like, okay, is there enough food in the environment? What nutrients are available in the environment? And the epigenetic changes essentially try to prime and prepare that baby for the environment that it's going to be born into. And so what can happen is if the mother is stressed, it's given the fetus the, the information, you're being born into a stressful environment and it can turn on kind of thresholds for stress and stress changes in the brain that can can make the child a bit more at risk of think, of um, psychological problems in childhood and adolescence and maybe later on. So really trying to manage that stress as much as possible. I, I suppose it goes without saying, you know, take care of yourself when you're, when you're pregnant, you know, is, is the kind of the main message to get out there. Um, I feel like I'm jumping around a lot, but there's a, a lot of things that I wanted to talk with you about. But one thing in particular was um, if, we t if we talk uh, specifically about depression, which I know a lot of people will have uh, an interest in, and more probably a lot of people have a personal interest in, is there was a, a study done in uh, Australia a few years ago known as the SMILES trial, which is one of, let's say, in, in my opinion, one of the more robust studies looking at the effects of diet on depression. Mm -hmm. And it's I know it's an area that people are very, very interested in. How can we improve our mood um, through what we eat? And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about the SMILES trial, what it was, kind of how it worked, and kind of what were some of the, the main outcomes or main results from that? What, could, what can we tell from that study? Sure. So the SMILES trial was a nutrition intervention study that came out of the um, the lab of Felice Jacker. Um, so she has written a book called Brain Changer, which talks all about this research and its implications. And SMILES was an adjunctive trial, which means it looked at nutrition as a supportive or an adjunctive, an add-on treatment for the treatment as usual. So they took people you fulfilled two criteria. So A, you have a clinical diagnosis of depression and B, you have a clinical, clinically poor diet. So people who were eating foods that are very high and, and eating diets that pre were predominant in refined carbohydrates, lots of free sugars, um, saturated fats, high in salt um, and and check the, the stats on the alcohol, but you know, what we would consider um, a nutritionally poor diet. So you took these people and they were allowed to, so they were already in treatment for um, for their depression. So they were either already taking medication or already having psychotherapy or both um, and, and improved their diet, split them into two, into two groups and said, look, this group over here is going to have befriending. And we know that befriending helps improve uh, mood. So they would get together once a week for 12 weeks, play cards, talk, play games, chat with each other. And that was the control group. And then on the other side, this group of people, once a week, they, they were given a box of veggies um, and they met with a, a dietitian who helped them to improve their diets um, towards a, a more Mediterranean style diet. Fruits and vegetables, leafy, green, leafy greens, nuts, whole grains and so forth. And at the end of the 12 weeks, so at the end of three months, what they found was a dramatic reduction in the severity of depression in those who had improved their diets. And for a third of the, that group, a remission of their depression, which means that clinically they would no longer be considered 
depressed. And what's important about that is that these were people who were already in treatment. So we would have expected that, you know, if they were going to get better, we, you know, from our standard treatments, they should have got better from the psychotherapy and the medication. But it seems to be the addition of the improved nutrition that triggered the improvements in this group of people. And that's why because it was um, controlled against the befriending group, that's why Smiles made such a splash when it was published four years ago now. Um, because we've had the epidemiology for a long time. We've looked at groups of people, 15,000, 10,000, 11,000 people, and we've shown time and time and time again, the more you adhere to what your country says is a healthy diet, so whether it's Ireland or Spain or Denmark or Japan, what your country says is a healthy diet, the more you stick to that, the less risk of depression you will have. Um, and, and the problem with that is because it was correlational, we could never really say for sure it's the diet that's making the difference. So the thing about smiles and the studies that have come out after it is that it's, it's shown us actually the diet has a very impressive effect on, on stress, on, on depression incidence and severity. Absolutely. I, I think one thing that's absolutely fascinating about about smiles and i think it's fascinating about the work that you do yourself and how vocal you are about you know the role of nutrition in in mental health is that it it, it showed it can kind of well conclusively within the trial that you can have better uh, mental health outcomes by improving somebody's diet um now obviously in in, in the smiles population you're looking at a, a population of people who have a very very poor diet to begin with and it was improved I, I think that there is a concern, and I just want to ask what your opinion on this, that you're going to get people, you know, because within society there is a, a tendency to, to polarize everything. We're going to have certain groups, which yeah, is strange, right? Uh, we're going to have certain groups that are going to um, automatically say, there you go, this study is showing that diet, you know, cures depression. That's all we need. We need to focus on our diet or, you know, whatever other lifestyle factor you, you want to um, to talk about. Is, is that a concern? And, and how how can we kind of, I, I don't know, temper people's enthusiasm and passion <laughs> for, for wanting to improve their diet? Um, I think, so it is and it isn't a concern. It is it is a concern when people take that study or similar studies and say, if you're depressed, this is what you need to do. Because... Uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that depression isn't just one unitary disease which has the same cause for everyone and the same outcome for everyone. That's not the case. You might have 10 people in a room who are depressed and one might have depression that's caused predominantly by poor diet. Another might be a childhood trauma. Another it might be work stress. Another it might be problems with their relationship. Any combination of the above. It's, it's, it's simply not good enough to say, oh, well, I've been depressed and this worked for me, so this is going to work for you. You don't know what you're talking about. You should be saying things much more quietly. Um, so, <laughs> so the first thing is that depression isn't just one disease. Um, it's, it has different causes and it's worth understanding the you know ideally what would happen when people go to their gp um with a suspected depression is that they would have the time to find out what's causing your depression not just are you depressed or not but what's causing your depression and unfortunately our gps just don't have time to do that so yes it's a concern if people come out with a one-size-fits-all nutritional 
fix you know that's supposed to work for everybody that's simply not going to be the case um i'm less concerned if people just want to try it alongside whatever they're doing right so if someone looks at their diet and says actually you know i'm i'm my diet is 70% chocolate muffins maybe there's room for improvement and i'm going to try and get some leafy greens in and i'm going to try and get some fish in as long as you don't pin all of your hopes on changing your diet fixing your depression then the evidence says well maybe it might help for some people for about 30% of people it might be helpful for you um and it's certainly not going to hurt eating more leafy greens for most people isn't going to hurt so um i would yeah so i just i would caution against being overzealous but if you want to you know try some gentle improvements that are in line with you know what are the british dietetic association or the nutritional um regulations about improve you know what is a healthier diet what, what does the nhs say is a healthier diet then there are likely to be few risks with that absolutely um like just before we move on i do want to kind of bring up a point just for anybody who might be interested with this because there's an awful tendency within nutrition to 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 kind of focus on elimination of certain food groups for mm-hmm. whatever reason people will always come up with a reason to eliminate something and it will improve your health somehow i just want to say with within the smiles trial it was an incredibly balanced diet like they they were not kind of you know denied anything really like you know they had they had grains there they had vegetables fruit you know they were getting fruit sugar in there for anybody who's worried they were getting carbs um, they were also getting meat. They were getting dairy. There, there, there was and they were, they were getting treat foods. So those foods that you know, the the fatty foods, the fried foods, the cakes and biscuits. Actually, on smiles, people were allowed to have them um, three times a week. So every other day, you were still having one of these foods that would. Uh, that if you eat too much of is considered part of a poor diet. So it wasn't about exclusion at all. It was really much more about inclusion getting those nutrients in like you can in, enjoy your muffin but i want to make sure you're getting your greens and your fish in uh, alongside it so that you are giving your body the nutrients it needs giving your brain the nutrients it needs to to build healthy structure and to function well yeah absolutely exactly. and, and I, i think people that's that's a fantastic point inclusive diets just focus on what you want to include what you need and then you know you're you're, you're building a base for your diet And then if you want your chocolate muffin, which I think you should be allowed to have you know, a couple of times a week, I think that's it. I think that's... Um, I'm, I'm very conscious of your time, um, but there, is, there are two last things I would like to ask you. And one of them very, very briefly is, because um, people would kill me if I, if I didn't ask this question, um, if you were to give a few recommendations in terms of, let's say, some key foods or some key nutrients that people should focus on in their diets to help improve their mental health. And that can be from cognitive or from a, an emotional perspective, depression, anxiety, anything at all. What would some of those recommendations be? And, you know, if I could be so bold maybe to ask, are there any other lifestyle recommendations that you, you might kind of recommend to people as well? Sure. I, I think, and, and the first of these two come from Felice Jacka, who led the SMILES trial. And I asked her the same question. Um, and she said, fiber and polyphenols. So getting fiber in every day, 
with, and, and so whole grains, your brown rice, your uh, whole grain breads, um, and mixing those up. So barley and spelt and rye breads, as well as your straightforward wheat breads. Beans and pulses. She says that you can't really, she doesn't know how you're going to get enough fiber if you're not eating beans on a regular basis because they're so um, fiber rich. So fiber every day because, I mean, we didn't talk about it today, but um, your gut, the relationship between your gut and your brain is really important for your brain health. Just, but and, and what your gut needs to be healthy is plenty polyphenols brightly colored compounds that give fruits and vegetables their intense color so getting as many again uh, brightly colored fruits and vegetables in as you can and then i would add i would have the audacity to add to that um essential fats so oily fish um so your your as i said your salmon sardines mackerel anchovies herring and trout and if you don't eat fish if you don't like fish if you're vegetarian if you're vegan then taking a uh, an algae based dha supplement which has at least 500 milligrams of dha it will say it on the back of the jar um you know dha per serving and making sure you're taking because often it can be a little bit um confusing because it will say oh dha per daily serving 800 milligrams but you need to take three tablets in order to get that so that won't be per tablet it's per serving so do check the serving um those would be my my top three if you could nail if you had to kind of nail it down to three and if if i can have four then leafy greens on top of that as well fantastic uh, and i really really appreciate the, the the specificity with the recommendation around the dosage for the the, the dha um because that, again like, like you said that is something that people often get uh, wrong when they're taking their, their, their supplements. Um, and if, if we were to add any lifestyle changes in there, is there anything that you think would be pertinent for, for mental health as well? All day long sleep. Like um, when I, if someone comes into me and I, I give people who see me a very thorough, extensive, probably terrifying um, assessment, um, which includes uh, understanding what they're eating, understanding how they're sleeping, a, a full medical history <laughs> and a, a psychotherapy uh, uh, history as well. And essentially your brain is not online if you're not sleeping well. So it doesn't matter what kind of fancy new therapy we might be doing. If you are so underslept that you can't concentrate, you know, that your your brain isn't really there with me, then we're not doing anything. So the first thing always and every time is to improve sleep. And sleep is so close to a, a total tonic for the brain. You know, it helps to clear out the buildup of metabolic waste that it builds up between your brain cells during the day. That rate of clearance is doubled during sleep. We know that when you are underslept, you are more paranoid. So when you haven't had enough sleep, you're more likely to interpret faces and behaviors of other people as more hostile than you are if you've slept well enough so being underslept literally makes the world a more hostile place which therefore makes the world a more stressful place for you to be in people who are underslept have more mood lability you know you get a little bit hysterical but also you, you you can be very low and very depressed it makes your mood very up and down and it also makes you very very bad at judging risk which is why for example, drowsy sleeping is a really, really bad idea because your judgment is so shot to pieces. So all of that stuff, the, you know, the place to start, even I'd say even before nutrition, maybe alongside it, but really um, getting that sleep in first, um, anchoring your sleep if you need to. So getting, uh, getting light early in the day, going for a 10 minute walk when you've got what's called low solar angle light. So before the sun is above 
your head before the sun is right above you. So somewhere at the moment, eight o'clock is nice. Eight, nine, ten is a nice time to go for a 10 minute walk. Get that natural light to help anchor your circadian rhythm and get you into a nice sleep rhythm. There's loads and loads of sleep tips all over the internet. So I, I won't bore you with them, but sleep, nutrition um, and exercise. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we can build on those. All, all, all the good stuff. I, I'm 100% sure that there are going to be people who are like thinking, I, I want to know more about this. And very, very conveniently, you've written a book um, all about how to take care of your brain. Could you tell us a little bit about it? <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> book, I, um, I got really, I got really frustrated because my, my work, I guess it's what well, the book started as a, a seminar for psychologists um, because I was seeing people and I became very frustrated that I could only work with one person at a time. You know, here's all of this information that can, you can use to help take better care of your brain, but I can only deal with one person one hour a week. So I thought maybe I could train some more psychologists. And then I was like, well, they're only going to be seeing so many people an hour a week. So then I had the opportunity to write the book. And really the book is focused on mental health prevention. You know, we, we use prevention in the rest of medicine. Everywhere else in the rest of medicine, we use prevention. You know, make sure you don't smoke. Try not to smoke. Quit smoking in order to reduce your risk of heart disease and, and lung cancer. You know, brush your teeth so you don't get caries and so you don't get gum disease. Wear socks so you don't get blisters. Like everywhere else in the world, we have prevention. But only in mental health do we wait until something goes wrong. We wait for that child to have an anxiety attack. We wait for that you know, executive to come down with depression or to have some sort of outburst. We wait for the first symptoms of psychological decline before we intervene. It does not make sense. We do not need to do that. Hopefully, as I've got across, the brain is an organ. It, it, it can be built. It can be strengthened. It can be supported. And if we, get, if we apply the principle of prevention to mental health, then we could help so many more people than we do waiting for the crisis to come first. So my book is all about mental health prevention. It's about how to eat, sleep, think, build psychological resilience. I talk about understanding your emotions. You know, what does anger mean and how can you manage it? What activities can you do in your day to help support your own mental health? How do we help build mental health, good mental health in children? Um, you know, dental health, how does brushing your teeth actually protect your brain? It's actually linked to Alzheimer's disease. It's really important and really interesting. Fasting, heat exposure, all sorts. So, yeah, it's all there, how to build a healthy brain. There you go, guys. Uh, I will link to that as well in the show notes of this episode. Um, Kimberly, I, I cannot begin to tell you, like, how much I've loved this conversation. I, I, I could literally pick your brain for hours about this but i don't want to bore you um but i i just want to say like on behalf of myself obviously and everybody who's listening thank you so much for, for for speaking with me tonight for for sharing everything that you know and um for anybody who's interested where's the the best uh place to kind of to keep up to date with what you're doing and, and your activity um probably the best place is actually instagram i'm there most often that's where i put any new updates um resources so often if there's a downloadable form or anything like that you can find on my website which is kimberly i forgot my own name kimberlywilson.co uh, uh so you can find that and there's a link in my bio that will take you there as well and you can also find the podcast there um, I actually host two podcasts now. But, um, my own one is Stronger Minds, and I talk about things like um, 
self-sabotage and what that's all about, anger, understanding borderline personality disorder and, and kind of different psychological ideas as well. So you can find all of those resources through um, those links on my Instagram page. Fantastic. And for anybody who's not a follower, follow her now. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a very small amount of people, believe me. Um, Kimberly, once again, thank you so much for, for sharing this. Hopefully, uh, in the future, I'll be able to get you uh, on again and we can speak maybe a little bit more in depth about the gut brain access. Well, I'll speak a bit more slowly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm overexcited. <laughs> thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and um, hopefully, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me and take care of your brains, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.